Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to America's Best Baseball Podcast. We take you behind the scenes in and around Major League Baseball with former big league manager Kevin Kennedy and veteran baseball broadcaster Rich Herrera. This is the only weekly podcast hosted by someone like Kennedy who played, coached, and managed in pro ball. So we can take you into the manager's office for a real insider's view of baseball alongside a veteran baseball broadcaster like Herrera who has covered the game from coast to coast. So let's talk some baseball with your hosts. Here they are. The skipper, Kevin Kennedy, and Rich Herrera. Welcome, everybody, to America's Best Baseball Podcast. The skipper, Kevin Kennedy, Rich Herrera. We are texting back and forth. Oh, what a ball game we had yesterday at Dodger Stadium as we're getting ready to tape the program. In case you missed it, it was classic Giants versus the Dodgers. Watson delivers. Quig, big grip, fouls it back. And it's one and two. Now, Quig and Hundley are going at it, and the bench is clear. Quig and Hundley, I'm not sure what caused it. And now Hundley has been tackled. Pence is in the middle of it now, getting Hundley out of the way. The benches have cleared. The bullpens have cleared. Not sure what was said, but we can tell you what was done. Quig is really hot. Bob Guerin trying to keep him away from the scrum. They started chirping and then all of a sudden pushing and shoving and benches clearing. Quig explaining his side of the story to Turner Ward and Bob Guerin. Both managers and a coaching staff trying to get their respected teams back. The umpires are They've been watching, and they're going to have a huddle and figure out who stays, who goes. The pitch is fouled to the backstop. He kind of hung a changeup. Puig's upset at himself. That pitch was right out over the plate. And Puig, after he finished his follow-through, and Hundley's upset at Puig. Puig's in Hundley's face. I think Hundley's ticked off. And now, and now Puig is pushing him. He threw a punch. Tony Watson now down. Puig takes the helmet off. Hundley's trying to go after him. And here comes Puig. He throws another punch. Pence running in. And everybody's off the benches. We got a legitimate fight going on. Hundley gets wrestled away. He is hot. And I don't blame him. Puig pulled away from the pile. Everybody else is trying to be calm. Kike Hernandez, though, and Bumgarner are going at it. You know Bumgarner's going to be in the middle of it. So a Giants. Dodgers. Melee. Highlight courtesy of the Dodgers and the Giants radio network. Skip, I thought I'd throw both of them back-to-back for you, but uh, let's talk a little bit about that last night. Hey, Giants-Dodgers, I say the greatest rivalry of all time. You're on the West Coast, so I know that you grew up a Dodger fan, but you were a Red Sox manager. Everybody talks on the East Coast about the Yankees and the Red Sox. 
Am I crazy when I say the orange and black versus the Dodger blue is one of the most intense, if not the most intense? Well, I was with that organization, meaning the Dodgers, for 10 years in the minor leagues, and Tommy Lasorda uh, would make sure that in the minor leagues, if we were playing the Fresno Giants and we were in Bakersfield, as you remember, that you had to beat the Giants at every level. The Giants were always in the same uh, league as the Dodgers, all the way up from AA, A-ball, AA, AAA, and then a, the big league. So, And then growing up here in Los Angeles, even going back you know, to the 60s, I remember Billy Buckner mainly in the 70s. Uh, I think there was a – he might have thrown – I mean, I remember Bon Marshall and Johnny Roseboro. That was in the 60s. I remember that incident. I remember a lot of incidents, obviously. So for me – even though I managed the Red Sox and those two years were phenomenal and that rivalry was just completely uh, insane. I mean, insane in a good way. It was great to see, you know, both sides, the fans really get into it. For me, I think for all the reasons I already stated, it's it's the Giants-Dodgers, that rivalry. Yeah, but, you know, I've been with three organizations as a player and uh, all three of those organizations were rivalry organizations. I was with St. Louis for one year. I was with the Orioles, uh, of course, that, as a player, but that they didn't have a main rival. But uh, I was with Boston, of course, as a manager right. against the Yankees, and I was a player, and then I was a manager in the Dodgers system against the Giants. So I understand all three main baseball rivals. But even though I know Boston fans will say it's the Boston Yan- Boston Yankees are the biggest rivalry um, because of you know the West Coast and growing up here, I I learned that it's the Giants. I mean, you got to hate the Giants, and I. Uh, even on radio out here uh, on the station, there's uh, people that will uh, that are hosts that will say the hated ones are in town. And when you say that, <laughs> and you're and you're in L.A., you know who they, they're talking about. So I never actually used those terms, but um, it was just oh, a uni- used worst. It was just a uniform that you saw and you knew it, it did get the edge up a little bit more, and that's what we saw again last night. So with the Yankees and the Red Sox and that rivalry that's been heated for so long, Skipper, um, where do you think it was more intense, between the fans or the players? Well, I mean, if you go back, obviously um, the players got into it with with the Red Sox and Yankees got into it back in their day, especially in the day of Greg Nettles and um, those Yankee teams in the 70s. And those Red Sox teams in the 70s and 80s, they, they got into it. There were some fisticuffs going on. Uh, we didn't see that <clears throat> in my years in the 90s. We didn't see that type of uh, rivalry. It was more the fans because I, I still remember before the Red Sox won after 86 years waiting between World Series championships, the Yankee fans in Fenway Park, would, would uh, if they got a lead, they would start chanting 19, 18, 19, 18. <laughs> So that that got to you a little bit, but the guys that come from the outside, and I know a lot of players, even from the inside, Mo Vaughn, Roger Clemens came up to the system. They didn't buy into the, you know, the the, the Babe Ruth trade and and all that. They didn't buy into the curse. I'll just say that, and and nobody from the outside really bought into that. Right. And that's really what Kevin Millar and Johnny Damon and that group said uh, when they beat the Yankees and finally went on to win the World Series. So. Uh, but it's pretty intense. I got to say, the fans were pretty intense. I mean, when you go out to the mound in Yankee Stadium, and you're the Red Sox manager, and you're getting uh, booed uh, as loud as can be, and you really haven't done anything, that tells you uh, how much the fans are into it and want to beat the Red Sox. Let's just put it that way. I mean, remember Conseco played right field 
at that time for me, and he would tell me, and I could see it. I mean, bottles were being thrown at him. A lot of things were being thrown in right field at him <clears throat> just because of who he was, but a lot because he was with the Red Sox too. So um, it got a little bit more with the fans, a little bit more into it from that standpoint. I think in the Dodger-Giant rivalry, um, it's still the fans too, but it's it's certain players. And I think in the modern day and what i'm saying modern day i mean in the last five six years since yasiel puig has become a dodger it's more about Bumgarner and yasiel puig it's right. more it's more about the looks that puig gives after each pitch um and i think the giants now Bumgarner held back the other night which which really surprised me i mean he shook me his, too he shook his head one time you saw him quick complain about not hitting one out of the ballpark if he squared one up out if he squared one up and flew out Puig would be shaking his head. If the umpire called a strike on him that he thought was a ball, he'd be shaking his head. And that carried over finally into game two last night. And of all people, Hundley, which I, you know, I don't know him that well, but um, I guess he didn't like the way Puig slapped his bat after he fouled back a pitch off of Tony Watson. And Tony Watson was a Dodger last year, and, and it wasn't about being mad at Tony Watson. Puig was truly mad at himself for falling off a pitch he thought he could have hit out of the ballpark. And apparently, uh, Hundley said, uh, you know, basically get back in the box and maybe a few other choice words, and you know the rest of the story. Okay, so you were a catcher. Take us back uh, before we get really into this into this yeah. from from the Giants to Dodgers. Right. Give us a little insight. Uh, take us inside the game of how much banter and actual speaking back and forth between a catcher and a hitter takes place. Um, you know, there were a lot of catchers when I was playing that would talk to you and try to distract you. Some would try to be your friend and you knew all they were doing to do is get your focus, um, on them and not on the pitcher. I wouldn't really talk to a lot of guys and try to distract them. I was more <clears throat> focused as a catcher myself, just calling the game. I wasn't a guy trying to get the edge by, you know, getting on a guy or telling him to get back in the box, things like that. I didn't want to give him any incentive to do more. If to, you know to what bear I mean. Down more. Right, right, yeah. right. And yeah. Then you get catchers, you get catchers that, you know, kind of are, uh, um, have a different stripe. So you, you had Hunley last night telling Puig, shut up, get back in the box. Uh, you had uh, the famous incident with uh, McCann, the catcher, uh, standing at home plate, blocking uh, home plate from somebody who showed up as pitcher. Carlo, and that Carlos Gomez. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. You, you've had, uh, there was one between, it was the Reds and the Cardinals with Yadier Molina. Um, where the I can't remember who was leading off, but he would he went to go say hello to Yachty, and Yachty goes, "Oh yeah, you don't like us," and boom, it was on from there. I mean, there's little things that the camera doesn't show, and if you're paying attention, if you're sitting at the ballpark, you know the first time up, a hitter will walk up, he'll address the umpire. By the way, don't call him blue. Uh, Dan Plesek has a great story that he tells on MLB Network about that. You you acknowledge him by his first name, maybe tap his shin guard, you tap the shin guard of the catcher, and there's a little ritual that you see of respect as the guy climbs into the box. Yeah, every once in a while. Not everybody does that. Some do, some don't, and that's all fine and good. But if you've had a history with a guy, um, that's not going to happen for the most part. You know, you're going to watch that guy, and you're going you're gonna to be shaking your own head like Bumgarner did on Puig. <laughs> right. And I, I was really expecting Bumgarner to say something, but he didn't. He held he his didn't. tongue. Yeah, he held his tongue, and he just pitched a, a, a decent game, obviously. <clears throat> and Kershaw was phenomenal, but at the end of the day, the Giants did win that game. Okay, so let's go back into, the, let's go back into this and, and, again, the brawl and get your thoughts on this. 
Uh, what do you do as a manager before, after this thing goes on? Um, just I wanted to get your overview of the whole thing. A couple people had, had chimed in on Twitter about this, like, hey, so what is Doc Roberts supposed to do? Uh, does he does he go out there and go crazy to stand up for his player? I mean, what's the skipper supposed to do? What's Doc supposed to do? Well, I, I was a guy that uh, always stood up for my players. I think most managers would stand up for their players. And then if there was something that you heard later on um, that – that you weren't told or that you found out through the grapevine, then you might get that player in the, in your own office alone, one-on-one and talk to a little bit and say, Hey, you know, this came back to me as is true. And if it is, let's not incite anything because uh, let's, let's let them start. If something's going to happen, let, let's just be on the giants, not on us. Now that's what Yasiel Puig said that he, uh, that Hunley said a few words in English that he couldn't repeat. So that, that tells me that he, that he swore at him. And if that's and if that's the case, then I understand where Yasiel Puig's coming from. So, uh, to me, Rich, that, okay, that's really. I got to ask though. I mean, listen, um, I have to watch myself when I come back after working a, a season of baseball because there are choice words that get thrown around as adjectives and adverbs and every way that you could think of it that get dropped on a routine basis. So, for someone to take offense at someone cursing. My gosh, that's all you hear sometimes at the ballpark. Well, the way Puig said it, it made it personal, though. If they, okay, if so, he said oh, you, gotcha. Yeah. So I could, yeah. I could drop f bombs all I want. I just can't put you in front of that f bomb. Yeah, and that's pretty much true when you're arguing with an umpire. Right. If you're arguing with an umpire, the first time you make it personal, like you screwed that up last week too. Like I said one one time when Rocky <laughs> Rowe, right? Uh, I said you missed that call last week too. That ball was a foul ball, not a home run. Well, today. Yeah, replay, you wouldn't have to worry about a ball being called fair or foul. But that's how I got kicked out one time by Rocky Rowe because I brought I up. not allow you to keep score yeah, on our calls. Yeah, I brought up uh, you. You did this last week, too. <laughs> and, that, and that got me tossed. I didn't have to cuss, and I didn't cuss that, in that situation. <clears throat> but I have in, in the minor leagues. I got kicked out enough. One year I got kicked out eight times as a manager. And Joe Madden still gets kicked out quite a bit. And that's uh, a change because when Joe Madden came to the big leagues, when he got his first job, they asked him because he was fire. He was fire. He was uh, following fire Lou Pinella, who loved yeah. to argue and get kicked out all the time. And Joe said originally, "No, I I could do better for my ball club by staying in the game and not getting kicked out. Um, so I'm not going to get kicked out." In his first year, he really didn't get kicked out that much. He got criticized for it, and now, man, Joe's getting run every other day. Yeah, I, I think it's um, it grows over time. What's interesting too is I was in the same situation in Texas when I took over. Uh, Bobby Valentine had, got, had been there eight years and got let go in the, in July of that year. And Toby Harris was an interim manager, and I'm talking about 1992. And then I took over in the year of 1993, got hired in the winter of 92. And I knew that Bobby had a reputation of getting on the umpire. So because I knew that, I made it extra um, – I made extra. Sh- I made sure that I didn't go overboard on the umpires because of that. I didn't want to have a reputation of being a yeller and a screamer on the umpires from the bench. Like that ball was a strike. That ball wasn't low. Uh, that ball was at the knees or vice versa. Things like that. The only thing on a ball strike uh, call from an umpire that you can see is height right. from from the bench. You can't see in and out. But if your catcher tells you he's got a wide zone today, then you've got a You've got to deal with it as a player, and that's that's what you share with the other players on your team. That hey, he's calling a wide zone today. He's calling a high zone today. And Rich, you know that one of our uh, guys on Twitter, Ramon, asked about uh, uh, the umpires and and, uh, and said that uh, you know 
Ben Zobris got kicked out the other day, just a couple of days ago, <laughs> arguing with Phil Cuzzy on balls and strikes. And said, that's, Ben's the nicest that's, guy that's, in the world. And he said, that's why we're going to a robotic umpire soon, of all things. Rich, you could you could uh, touch all on right, that. So let me, I'll, I'll jump in. So he so one of the big misnomers, two things, and we've talked about this in our podcast. We talked about this in satellite radio. People right. get mad because they think I'm just defending the umpires. But honestly, uh, you worked at Fox. You worked at ESPN. I worked at Fox. Um the Fox box, the tracks, whatever you want to call it, right. the thing yeah. you see on TBS, folks, those are not, those are not, I repeat, those are not what the what the strike zone is. Um, the other part of it is that everybody should realize what we're watching on TV is not a dead-on shot, so you're actually watching from an angle. So if you see it going over the plate, that's a strike right there. You're actually looking at an angle, so you really can't tell a lot of the depth of the pitch. You can't tell... Uh, the angles of the pitch, because if they shot from straight behind the pitcher, all you would see is his back, and you wouldn't actually be able to see the ball getting to the catcher. So there's a couple things automatically on TV that when you're going, oh, I can't believe he called that, you really don't have the same line of sight that an umpire does behind home plate. Now, here's the funny part. I won't tell you what umpire said this, because I'm not sure if I should. Uh, I don't want to throw his name out there. All right. But uh, <laughs> there's, there's, I spoke with some umpires about this subject. So I've told you, I've told everybody this before. Nobody believes me. The average score for a Major League Baseball umpire calling balls and strikes is 96%. The last I checked, 96%. Meaning if they see 200 pitches they're calling balls and strikes on, they missed four for, for each side, right? So 100 pitch on each side, 200 pitches total, they're calling balls and strikes. Uh, that surprises me. They're, they're, that missing, high. they're missing four. They're missing four on average. Some are better, some are worse, but on average it's four. Um, but the thing is, the system that they used, and there's a new system this year, and I, and I can't remember the name off the top of my head. It was Originally it was Quest Tech, then it was a Z system, and then it's got a cute name, and I'm going to blank on it, and I'm going to send a text to ask somebody what the name of it, and hopefully I'll get it for the end of the show, or I'll get it for the next show. Um, it's a, it's a high-speed camera that figures out the trajectory of the ball, the spin, the mm -hmm. velocity, and then they they right. it, it plots out an algorithm that tells you whether it's a ball or strike or not. Right. Um, right. The the thing is with those, there's some that they just don't come up with the algorithm. The algorithm doesn't work for what the cameras see. So there's also probably a couple pitches a game that there's no call. It doesn't register. So if you want to go to robotic umpires, that's great. What are you going to do when you get the non-call <laughs> and it comes on a 3-2 count in the bottom of the ninth? You ring the guy up to win the ball game, and all of a sudden you go to the to the, to the the Cyclops umpire, and he goes, no call. Well, you know what we used to do in Little League when the umpires wouldn't show up sometimes is the catchers called them. Catchers <laughs> called Yeah, could you imagine that? Oh, or I you had A.J. Or, Pruszynski behind the plate calling yeah, a game. Yeah, exactly. Or you had a dad on one of the teams, one of the coaches, get behind the mound and call them. Remember that, those yeah, days? Yeah, oh, I've done, I've done that many, many a times. So yeah. I guess the thing is, um, it, and it depends on whether you're a hitter or whether you're a, a hitter or a pitcher. So if I called the strike, and umpires are encouraged to call strikes, but if I call the strike zone where you have to have 100% of that baseball – Inside the strike zone, we're going to be here all day, Kevin. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting really watching these umpires the last um, several series where the Dodgers have struggled. It's curious um, because you, you really want – you see, one umpire will call the high strike. One umpire will not call the high strike. Well, again, where's the high strike? Yeah, well, by a book rule, you know what that is. 
It's it's the it, midpoint between the belt and the and the uh, the midpoint between the belt and your armpit. Right. That's, so it's that's, about the letters. That's that's the high that's the high strike, which is as you've said before, and many umpires have told me, basically three baseballs above your belt. Because if I call the if I call it at the letters, your armpits. By the time you stride you and you and you shorten your and you shrink down, squat down to hit, if I called it as you're standing, it's not where you're standing, it's as you're going to make contact. So as you stride, leg goes out, hips drop down, you turn and in your turning to drive the ball, your actual letters have gone down about three baseballs. So that's why they they say it's about three baseballs above your belt is the is the true strike zone. Um the other part of it is What's an acceptable pitch? And here's where I, I've never heard anybody talk about this on the radio, never heard anybody talk about this on TV. So we know where the Fox box is, right? Right, yeah. So the umpires get that same thing, but it's in a far better, better system uh, in, in technology that, that is leaps ahead of the, the, the television networks. And the umpires have to decide, is that acceptable pitch? How much of the circumference of the baseball? How big is a baseball, Kevin? How round is it? It's uh, not quite three inches. The, okay. uh, di- diameter. It's uh, what two and two and seven eighths, I believe, right. something like so that. How I gotta... much of the how much of the seven eighths am I going to give you? So if I have to have all two and seven eighths within the strike zone, then that's going to be a pitcher going to call for a strike. And we talk about umpires that are a little wide, and they're going to miss some every while. And then I get that part. Do I have to have half the baseball in? Do I have to have a quarter of the baseball in? Do I have to have three quarters of the baseball in? And that's really what we're talking about—a matter of inches, whether it's a whether it's a tight strike zone or whether it's really, really wide. It really is the 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 dynamiter of a baseball about two inches on whether I'm squeezing you or I'm I've got the strike zone the big uh, the size of my rear end. And the only problem I have—I don't have a problem with that. Watching umpires call that that pitch on the corners—that that that you know, part of the baseball's there, a quarter of an inch of the baseball's there. Because I I do believe if there's two strikes on you as a hitter, that's too close to take, and that's what we used to tell our hitters: that's too close to take. So just put it in play. Um, but it's a low pitch when I see catchers really move their glove a lot and they they freeze it there. And the umpires call it, and that is that where you is that okay? So that's also how you receive the ball. Is that where I'm taking? So if I have my fingers, I'm holding my fingers straight up, right, uh, like I have a catcher's mitt. And how I receive it is also uh, going to come a lot into play. So if I drop my hand down and it's just my wrist going down to catch that one, you got a better chance of getting a strike. If I turn my hand over and I stab at it like I'm digging, like I'm digging in the dirt, you're never going to get that call because Kevin, you just said it. The manager on the other side sees the umpire, sees the catcher sticking his fingers down and trying to dig that ball out of the dirt. He's going to scream at you all day long, so you don't get you know, that pitch. And I've talked to umpires like you have that said, you know, we don't really watch the catchers that are moving their glove and moving that glove up, backhanding a low pitch and moving it up right. into the knees. We don't. We call it before it gets to that point. But I got to tell you, uh, Austin Barnes moves his glove on every pitch. I think he does it more than any catcher in baseball, and he gets an awful lot of low strikes, I think, because of it. And I'm, I'm actually surprised that umpires are calling that because he's moving his glove so much. If you watch him when he catches versus Grandall, Grandall will move it a little bit, but not as much as Austin. Austin moves it on every single pitch, no matter where the ball is. Right, I've seen that. And you would think that umpires would be talking, but um, either they seem to be fooled by it or they believe that's, that's their zone, that the ball – Actually, it was think, a strike, but I, I know I Posey. Than, I know Posey got called a strike three um, uh, Monday night, 
And Austin Barnes, I give him credit for it because he got underneath the low pitch and made it look like a strike. And, and, and clearly, clearly the ball was way down. It was. It really well, was. And here's the other part. So we always hear people talk about framing pitches. Oh, this guy's really good at framing pitches. He right. steals a couple of pitches. Here's the deal. I'll tell everybody this because this isn't common knowledge for folks, is that after every game, the umpires get a report of all the pitches they missed. So if I'm getting fooled by a by a catcher that's kind of that, that's kind of sweeping the ball in or moving this way, I'm not going to be an umpire very long because by the time I get to this level, if I can get fooled by a guy who's kind of you know twisting his wrist, moving his forearm, kind of bringing the ball inside, I find out immediately after the game that I missed that pitch because the the system doesn't look at how you move your hand. It looks to where the ball comes across the plate. So if exactly. you were really stealing pitches all the time, you'd get found out after about a half inning of watching the disc and the supervisor would tell you he'd go down there because every missed call you have behind the plate, you actually have to fill out a report and tell them why you missed this pitch when you have to you, you have to actually go back and review it on video and you have to tell him your supervisor why I missed that pitch and then they'll go down there and coach you on the techniques what did you do what were you thinking and they actually don't just let you miss pitches and nobody cares that's and the rich part. Uh, maybe you could explain this too about the convert because rich went to umpires in school and you know a lot of the umpires personally very well what is the is the chatter among big league umpires today about catchers that do that that move their glove on every pitch what's the chatter See, I've talked to them a lot about this because for, for whatever reason, the folks at Bristol decided that this is going to be a stat, and then the sabermetricians wanted to figure out the stats, and then everybody else wants to see it. The one thing is is that none of us have the key code. So, Kevin, when you took the SATs, you, you there was a key code that graded your test, right? Right. Yep. There's the same thing. There's a key code that grades the tests for every umpire. The problem is it's not available to the general public, so everybody else guesses at it and what you think it is, and, and unfortunately, baseball just doesn't make that transparent. So for them, um, if it's really bad, they'll say, hey, knock it off. Stop trying to make me look bad. Or they'll just they'll, they'll say to the guy, hey, you know, you're not going to help yourself with any of that. They, they get irritated because they think it makes them look like they're gullible. Yeah. It makes them look like they're gullible, like yeah. I can be fooled by Kevin Kennedy. Kevin Kennedy's so good behind the plate, he can make me look foolish, which is the first you, – you know this, Kevin. You caught – it's the furthest thing from the truth that I can I can actually manipulate the umpire. He's so dumb he can't figure out that I'm jerking the mitt back in the strike zone uh, five out of ten pitches and not figure it out himself that you're trying to get one over on him. Yeah, and then, and then there'd be those catchers that would catch a ball and take it right out of the zone immediately and get the ball back to the pitcher, and they wouldn't give the umpire. I, I call it a beat. <laughs> I always used to teach my guys in the in the Dodger system, freeze it, give the guys a beat. Go to it and receive it. Go to the ball and receive it like you're receiving an egg. Go to it and then receive it. You know, you do go. I'm going to replay it in my head. So as you throw the pitch, comes across, I'm looking at it, I'm listening to it, I see it, and then I'm going to wait a bead. I'm going to replay it in my head to double, you know, it's going to take me a nanosecond as I replay it in my head. Yep, did it go right there? Did I see what I saw? Yep. And then I'm going to decide to raise my hand. Right, and we taught our guys not to jerk it in too much because what you're telling everybody in the ballpark, if you do that, it's a ball. Right. If you know, you just... have you ever seen, Skip, have you ever seen a young umpire where, you know, when they're standing there in the athletic position on the base pass, maybe at second base, and you might have seen this. I know I'll see it every once in a while, especially with young umpires, that they'll actually take their hands and make a fist and hold on to their pants. Yeah, I have. Uh huh. Do you know what that is? No. 
That's for a guy that needs to remind himself to take that bead before he makes the call. So by having your hands there and you're gripping your pants, holding onto them, you can't immediately at first blush fly your hands up in the air or start to make the motion for safe because the worst thing in the world you do is you start making the safe motion and then you're going to call them out. So now you really look indecisive. So I put my hands up like I'm going to call them safe and then I turn around and call them out. I haven't made anybody happy because the team that thought they were getting the safe call is going to come yell at me, wait a minute, you you were going to call him safe. And then the team that if I overturn it the other side, hey, wait a minute, no, no, you called him out. You called him out. You can't change your mind. You have to wait a half second to make sure that you really know in your mind what you're making that call of, then you make the call. Yeah, that's why I used to say, just give him a beat and you know freeze it, give him a beat, and then get the ball back to the pitcher. Don't don't just sweep it out of the zone all in one motion, unless you're throwing out somebody at second base or third base. That's different, but um, still, you, you, you know what you know you want to know what umpires complain the most about is, and I'll say this to you because you wore the catcher's gear, is catchers that have two strike zones. One for their pitcher where they want it to be uh, gigantic, ginormous. They want him to get every pitch, right? Right. And then you see them come to the plate, and they're squawking about every pitch that you were just begging for from your guy. And now you go in there, and you want it to be the size of a Dixie cup when you're hitting. That's what really irritates guys behind the plate when you want two different strike zones. Yeah, and when you have a, a catcher that does that, you're you're you know harming your own your own self, but you're harming your own guys too because the umpires are going to be upset at that. I, I never used to do that. You know, as long as you just say, hey, um, as long as it's both ways, that's all we, all we ask. And, and I know players, some players used to say, I used to say sometimes, is that as far outside as you're going to go tonight? Or is that as high as, as you're going to go tonight? When I was hitting. Or right. even, even catching. I said, is that where it is tonight? Yeah. And if, that, if, that's, not, any... that's not knocking him when you say that now. Not, you're, you're not saying to him, hey, you missed that. That ball was there. You're just saying, hey, um, is that as high as you're going to go tonight? Or is that as wide as you're going to go tonight? And it's funny. You'll see guys, was that a strike? You'll get a lot of guys, was that a strike to the umpire if he called a strike? After, goes, after, they, after they strike out. You'll after see they strike out. out. And, yeah. and, and the good umpire will go, it was a hittable pitch. Meaning, I didn't say it was a strike because I don't want you to turn around and start yelling at me. But it was a hittable pitch, meaning it was in the zone, and you should have been able to put it in. Well, I, I've had a lot of guys say, yes, it was. Or I've had guys, to be honest, say, no, actually, it wasn't. It was out of the zone. <laughs> and that's really hey, what you I, want. You'd rather have that than somebody try to, you know, massage you and say, well, it was a hittable pitch. Because that's that's up to me if it was a hittable pitch or not. It's up to you to call it a ball or a strike. Hey, and there are guys, I don't know if this has ever happened. I know I've had guys that admit to me that, hey, there's times where they just had bad nights. And they'll tell oh, you, hey, yeah, listen, absolutely. I'm having a bad night. Listen, Skip, uh, Kevin, I'm struggling tonight, man. I'm just, I'm having a bad day. Well, so. I had a guy, I'm going to tell you a quick story. It was a AAA uh, umpire. Can't remember his name. It was a lot, a lot of years ago. It was when Sid Fernandez was with the Dodgers. It was 1982. Okay. And Sid, for people that don't know Sid Fernandez or remember him, um, Sid threw hard, but he threw out of his left side of his chest area. The ball looked like it was rising, and we all know um, from physics that the ball can't actually rise, but it looked like it was rising. And hitters had a tough time picking it up, and so did the umpire this particular night. We were playing in Vancouver on the road. I was playing for Del Crandall, and he told me in the second inning, he goes, Kevin, I can't pick him up just like the hitters can. I'm having a tough night. Please tell Del Crandall, your skipper, um, I'm not doing this on purpose. I can't see the ball tonight. And he had a, he, caught, he he umpired the whole game that way. Right. And you develop a real trust and a real honesty. And I went back to Dell and I told the rest of the team, I said, hey, guys, 
this guy's struggling tonight. He's admitting it. So we're all going to have to bear with it. And so is the other team. Were you you, good with that? When you have that, yeah, because what are you going to do? I mean, and maybe he never made it to the big leagues. I don't believe this particular umpire did. A lot of the guys in my days that were in AAA, like Mike Witters and Phil Cuzzy, we just talked about, they were all all in the PCL. Um, And I knew a lot of the guys are in the big leagues now were all there trying to get to the big leagues like I was back when I was was playing. They were umpiring up to the minor leagues all the way up, too. And, yeah, when they were honest like that, I had no problem with that. You know, I mean, Phil Cuzzy, I remember – him in Winterball when I was in the Dominican Republic, uh, he was over there. He was doing the same thing I was. I was learning how to manage, trying to get there, and he was learning how to umpire. So, you, you know, you develop relationships from years ago, not just, you know, your first day in the big leagues. Well, that's a problem that we have in baseball right now, Kevin, is that there are no relationships. So way back when, when we had an American League and a National League and we had two different staffs, you would see a guy three, four, five, six times a year. Now you're lucky if you see the same guy twice in one year. Uh, I think that's actually to the detriment of baseball because you don't get to get a relationship with a Phil Cuzzy because you're only going to see him once or twice a year. Yeah, that, there's a lot of truth to that. It's changed. The leagues have changed. There used to be league presidents in two different leagues. You know, I remember Gene Budig was the American League president back in the 90s. Bill White, the great former player, St. Louis Cardinal in Philly, was the uh, National League president. And you used to go through the league uh, to, you know, fines and things like that or problems that you had. You used to go through the league president. Now, of course, it's all under one umbrella, which has changed things in a lot of ways. It's been for the better. But in a lot of ways, I miss the um, interaction of seeing the same guys a lot because then you really get to know them just like you get to know the opposition. Okay, I got a couple things. I want to get back to that Giants-Dodger game Um, because somebody had uh, sent me a tweet. Uh, PLH55. Wanting to ask you a question about Kike Hernandez batting cleanup versus lefties. Um, he says, next podcast, can you explain the Dodgers' fascination with batting Kike cleanup versus lefties? I think he should play versus lefties, but aren't there better options there? Well, first of all, let's take against Bumgarner. Um, just look at the numbers, first of all, against Bumgarner. That's what Dave Roberts and that's what the analytics staff does um, before every game. And let's Dave know all the different options of lineups that he can possibly put out there and what the best uh, algorithms are. And algorithms do come into play and analytics do come into play as far as Dave making out the lineup. Dave does write the lineup out, but there's a lot of input given to him before he does that. And Kiki Hernandez does kill Madison Bumgarner. He could be hitting 217, but he's hitting, you know, 480 off of Bumgarner or more with a lot of home runs. So that's why he hit fourth the other day. Sometimes he gets fourth. Because Matt Kemp's been slumping. Matt Kemp's been on a terrific slump since uh, the All-Star break. He's down to in the 280s now, I believe. Um, I saw a number, and I think it was right on the screen. I couldn't believe it. I think he was three for the last 48 or 58. I can't remember which. But um, it's really been really been tough. And so Matt's a right-handed bat. And that's one of the reasons they went out and got Dozier, by the way, is to have more right-handed help. And Dozier, of course, gets on base a lot. And they like him leading off right now because Chris Taylor's been striking out so much. So Chris is down in the lineup, so you're not going to put him in the fourth spot. And so even when they do pinch it for Kiki and bring a right-hander in, then they've got a better option off the left from the left side to, to pinch it in the fourth spot like a guy like Jock Peterson who's been very hot the last month and a half. So that's one of the reasons they're doing that. It's not just for the at-bats that Kike gets. It's for because, you know, the Dodgers do this. They change as soon as they bring a right-hander in. Off come, uh, out come the lefties off the bench. They, they mix and match a lot, and those right-handers are going to sit down, and they have a better option left-handed 
in the four spot by by doing that with a, a guy like Jock Peterson. Um, or Max wanna... Muncie, by the way, or Max Muncie, who's leading the ball club in home runs with 26, who's left-handed. So that's one of the reasons they do that, because they know he may not be out there for four at-bats um, in, in the four spot against uh, left-hander, because number one, that left-hander may not be out there that long, and number two, for the reasons I just mentioned. Um, I wanted to ask you just about the bullpen, because we, we've been watching this, and uh, I saw Alexander the other day when Hunley got him. Uh, the Dodgers, and, and this has been all over baseball, uh, MLB Network, about the struggles. And, and this is one of the things we talked about in our last podcast is Dave Roberts is going to have a hard time. You, you don't replace uh, Kenley Jansen. And, I, and, again, I always go back to this, Kevin. Nobody appreciates your closer until you don't have one. Everybody thinks closing baseball games is so easy and you can find them anywhere that you want. Hey, I've been with ball clubs that haven't had a closer, and it is painful. Well, ask Terry Francona when the Red Sox won that first World Series. What was it, in 04? Uh, they didn't have a closer. Bill James was working for them at the time and, and said, hey, bullpin by committee. It's yeah. Bullpin by committee works. The eighth inning actually is more important than the ninth inning. Remember all that? Yeah. Well, until they traded for Keith Folk, they would not have won the World Series without Keith Folk. They no. needed a closer. They got Keith Folk, and the rest was history. You just go back and check out the stats in the playoffs, and then the second half, once they got him, because they knew who their closer was, and it put everybody else in a more defined role. They knew when they were going to get up for the most part. Now, I'm not I'm not a believer in saying, hey, the seventh inning's yours no matter what. We're going to win it or lose it in the seventh inning with you. In other words, let's just take uh, Dylan Floro. Dylan Floro gets up in the eighth inning, and, and he's brought in. If he doesn't have his stuff that night, I'm not going to win or lose the ballgame right then and there. I'm going to have, you know, if the lefties come off the bench to face him and he doesn't have command that night, I'm going to have Alexander or Caleb Ferguson ready or whoever um, to, to combat that. So the other manager can't, can't manage against me. And it, but if you don't have a guy up behind him, if he's in trouble, I'm just using him as an example. Right. Then you're, you're playing right into the hands of a Bruce Bochy. Then Bruce Bochy says, I don't have to worry about that. I can, I can bring my lefties on the bench because nobody's up. He's going to win it or lose it with, uh, with this guy. Now, Dave Roberts doesn't do that. However, in, in one of the games in Colorado, he did do that. And uh, he didn't have anybody up behind uh, the righty. I think one of them was Dylan Chagois. And he, he won it or lost it with Chagois. One night he won it or lost it with uh, Floro. And uh, one night he brought in Alexander to close it. He got his first guy. He got a strikeout and then he hit the next guy or walked him. I think he hit him on the, on a three and O pitch or three and one pitch. Right. And then Dave brought the right-hander in. I think that's when he brought Chagois in and Chagois gave it up. But is this the game? Which game was this? I can't. It's hard. They all run together. They lost three in a row in Colorado. It was one of the first two in Colorado where McMahon hit the home run in the eighth inning. I think it was right. Um, but one, but a couple of them were a ninth inning where the Dodgers had a lead, and uh, especially the last one where um, I think that was was that Floro that gave up the home run to McMahon, uh, three run home run. Well, you you just had, and let's take a listen. Here's from the other night uh, with Scott Alexander trying to finish off the ball game against the Giants. Swinging the line drive, base hit, right field. One run scores. Longoria scores, and the Giants take the lead on the first pitch. And the bullpen collapses again for the Dodgers. How about that? Highlight courtesy of the Giants radio network. I mean, the, those last three outs, um, I, don't know, I don't know anybody who has an algorithm can tell me about controlling your adrenaline and being there with 
nobody behind you. No, there, there's something to it. You know, there, there's a lot, a lot to that, and that's why it's all good. These analytics and sabermetrics and uh, guys like Bill James. Oh, have, people are going to get mad at us that we're uh, anti-sabermetrics. Well, I'm not. I'm not, like I'm, I'm not anti-analytics. Like I'm not anti-stats. I'm just saying when you're saying you don't need a closer, and and the algorithms say that the most important inning is the eighth inning, you're not putting in the human element of a guy you know that that's that's the difference and that's where Kenley Jansen comes into play or that's where Will Smith right now is coming into play for Bruce Bochy Bruce Bochy the last two years didn't have a bullpen he didn't have a closer he didn't no, know who to go to right now he knows where to go to Will Smith gets righties out and lefties out and he's his closer right now since Strickland broke his hand he's been the closer and he's done a good job so, I'd love to see him stay there for a while. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised last night when Sam Dyson was allowed to stay in there against everybody, righties and lefties. I know he gets lefties out because of his sinker, but when he didn't have it, I was surprised, even though he got the first two outs, but they were long outs. And on a, right. on a, on a lot of nights, those would have been home runs, and he would have been they would have lost the game in the eighth inning. Daytime game, gone. Yeah, and, and uh, Turner's ball, he thought he hit it out. I thought he hit it out watching it, but it ended up being a double, but then Machado got the base hit to tie it. The best pitch he made was the last pitch of that inning. He got it down finally, his sinker. But Bruce normally doesn't do that in the eighth inning. He'll mix and match. Tony Watson pitched the seventh and got it one, two, three, you know, got the guys out. But in the eighth inning, he brought in Dyson and didn't have anybody up, up behind him. And I thought for the final, you know, five outs, four outs, he would uh, mix and match with his other guys in his bullpen. Montes finally got up, uh, the big right hander with the Bills throws 98, but it was a little bit too late. But anyway, my point is. Um, for the last two years, Bochy didn't have anybody he could go to. He tried everybody. He tried Derek Law. He tried uh, Garen, who's now with Texas. He tried, right. uh, he, you name it. He tried Romo. He was looking for guys in the in the bullpen. He was looking for guys in the bullpen that he could find in the in the bleachers. Hey, can, hey you got a uniform on? Come on. And Let me see you finish off a ball game. And as you know, being a Giant fan, they blew more games the last couple of years than anybody in baseball because Absolutely. of it. So that shows the importance of having a ninth inning guy. Now. Let me explain why, for the Dodgers, Kenley Jansen is so important. Because for Dave Roberts, or whoever's managing and has a Kenley Jansen type, now you're managing less outs. You know who the final three outs, maybe the final four outs are, are going. Now you've got to manage. You put those outs to the side. Let's just take three outs and put them to the side. Now you're managing 24 outs. Let's say your starter goes six six innings. Let's say Alex Wood goes six innings. You got the game right there. You got a two-to-one lead. Okay, now you're only managing six outs. And maybe maybe five outs because you know that Kenley Jansen can give you four. And in the playoffs, he can give you five outs or maybe six outs in the playoffs. But now you, you can't manage that way. Now you have to mix and match the whole way. And Dave is now trying. Now you got to get all 27. Now you got to get all 27. But not only that, you let your starter go a little bit deeper like he did with Kershaw. And Kershaw went eight great innings, and yet they still blew it, blew that game. Alexander, Alexander was the guy he chose. And Alexander was the guy he kept out there, and Alexander, you know, didn't get it done. I mean, he looks good sometimes, and great sinker, gets the first out on one pitch, and then all of a sudden you got base hit. And, yeah, granted, some of them were soft hits, but they're still hits. You know what I mean? They're still what base hits. And off, Ken um, and off Kenley Jansen, you don't get – not only do you not get soft hits, you don't get any hits, basically, since April off of Kenley Jansen. Can I try this analogy for you? Sure. So you talked mm -hmm. about it. 27 outs. Kenley's going to take care of three of them, so I just got to manage 24, right? Right. How about how about if we throw this analogy out? Would it be like, because football starting. By the way, what's your football team? I've never asked you that. Oh, I'm the Cowboys all the way. Oh, that's right. Dallas Cowboys, Cowboys big time. All right, yeah. so, Troy so Aikman days, Emmett Smith, <laughs> Michael Irving. Irving, <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a big uh, Cowboy fan. 
Okay, yeah. so how about if uh, if Jason Garrett, uh, who's coaching the Cowboys, um, he has to he has to coach sixty minutes, right? He has to, all four you know four quarters of fifteen minutes, sixty minutes, right? Right. What if he had a closer in his and he didn't have to coach the final two minutes of a football game and he only had to coach fifty eight minutes of a game because he knew he had somebody to finish off the last well, two minute warning. That's New he England. Would have, he would he would have a huge advantage, well, right? Well, that, that's Tom Brady. Yeah. So you it's know? almost the same thing. If I've got Kenley. I've got an advantage because I don't have to play the I don't have to play the two minute warning. Well, that's Kobe Bryant when in his prime with the Lakers. The fourth yep. quarter was his. You look at the yeah. numbers Kobe would put up in the fourth quarter. The I fourth just quarter was his. Of the game. Yeah, and so the same thing now with LeBron James. Guys that were dominant like that, they took over the game. Michael Jordan in his prime and, and all those great championships. Or you, or you could go Steph Curry. You know, third quarter the Steph Golden Curry. State Warriors same thing, absolutely. Yeah. Steph Curry and Michael Thompson, but Steph Curry, absolutely, the ball's going to him and he's going to win it. And so that's how you feel when you have Kenley Jansen. You know, if you have a lead or you're close in the fourth quarter, that you're in good shape. If you have a yep. Kobe Bryant, and it's the same thing managing a baseball game. You know, you got a lead going into the eighth inning, and you can manage those outs and mix and match and get a zero up there. That you know, the chances of winning that game are, are nine out of ten, if not better. I mean, and when you think about closers, it's interesting because Trevor Hoffman has a ninety percent save rate, and I think Mariano Rivera is right below him, like eighty-nine point five, really close to that. Most closers, if you say the game 85% of the time you're doing your job, right. those those guys did basically 90%, 90 to 91% for their career, which actually is really good. People say, well, 9 out of 10, it should be more like 38 out of 40 or 39 out of 40. you don't understand how difficult the job yeah. is. Yeah, it doesn't It doesn't always work like that because you could, you could bloop a ball in. You could occasionally have a, a soft hit or occasionally you could hit a guy or walk a guy occasionally. Right. Uh, or you could have a bad first couple of weeks like Kenley Jansen did, but you look since then he's been almost perfect. So um, the Dodgers need him. The Dodgers need him back uh, sooner rather than later. It looks like he's going to have an earlier return, which is great news for the Dodgers, and then probably have to have off-season surgery. Yeah, it looks like it. He had surgery in yeah. 2012, and it looks like it. I, it might be back sooner than than a month, but but we'll see. But it shows the importance of Kenley. I mean, it's obviously more important for him to be healthy than anything else. Right. But yeah, and my in our thoughts and prayers. I mean, it's not. Yeah, right of course. Thank goodness. But you know, anytime it's a heart. Look at look um, at look at Colorado. As well as they've played, you know, most of the year, they had their little slump there for a while. But look look at where they are right now. If Wade Davis hadn't blown in that bullpen, hadn't right. blown as many games, and I'm including Brian Shaw in that and McGee, the three money makers there, where they paid a hundred million dollars for three relievers. If Wade Davis hadn't been as inconsistent as he had been, the Rockies would be in first place right now by five or six games. And, by the way, that's why guys are in the bullpen anyway, because they are inconsistent. Because if you were that consistent, where would I put you, Skip? Well, if you if you had four pitches, you'd be a starter like a Clayton Kershaw or a Bumgarner or somebody like that. Wade Davis was a starter, but Wade was was inconsistent. Right. But he but he had three really good pitches. He had uh, actually four as a starter, but he has three really good pitches, a curveball fastball in the cutter and this year he's just been inconsistent as all i've watched him a lot obviously i watched the west a ton but the rockies have had a really good run and right now um it's the three-team race and the giants you can't discount them if they happen to win tonight hanging around hanging around hanging around they're hanging right there and and, uh they're without cueto and they're without some big guys too just like the dodgers are and just like a lot of teams are so 
it's going to be a fun. It's going to be a fun uh, race in the West. It is. That's why there hasn't been any a team right now, at least with six weeks to go, been able to put separation between them and the other two teams we're talking about, or three teams, including the Giants. So yeah, fun. it's fun. Yeah. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast for today. Don't forget, you can find Kevin Kennedy, Kevin Kennedy MLB on Twitter. Mine's RBI Rich. We thank you so much for tuning in or downloading. It's a podcast. Downloading. Uh, some radio stuff never leaves, Kevin. But it's <laughs> downloading. Downloading our podcast. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us for America's Best Baseball Podcast. Our podcast was produced by Braden Suppernant. Find us on Facebook at America's Best Baseball Podcast. You can find Kevin at Kevin Kennedy MLB on Twitter, and you can find Rich on Twitter at RBI Rich. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.